Hi, and welcome to Adventures in Ventureland, a rainmaking venture studio podcast, exploring the weird and wacky world of venture building. Together, we'll interview founders and corporate innovators to explore venture building from all angles. So hi, and welcome to this interview with Jordan Schlipp, CEO and founder of Rainmaking Venture Studios, and also co-founder of Rainmaking. My name's Hattie Willis, and I'm also in Rainmaking Venture Studios as an associate principal. And the reason we wanted to do this little video was to share with you some of the ways that their models evolved and some of the color around what we actually do, how it actually works. So I'm thrilled to have with us Jordan who can provide that color. So just to give you a little bit of background on Jordan, for those of you who haven't had the pleasure yet, uh, Jordan is a serial entrepreneur. He's also specialized in entrepreneurship education and he sat on the other side of the table as a venture capitalist. And spoiler alert, this is not his first studio. He's tried out the model in multiple guises with other entrepreneurs trying to repeatedly and systematically build new businesses, uh, with corporates trying to do it as part of their existing and internal processes. And we've now reached the model as it is today, which we're very excited to share. So Jordan, please, could you give us a little flavor? What is the new studio model? Um, the new studio model, we, well, predominantly, we're basically an investment vehicle that um, de-risks the, the, the process of building startups, but by doing so, we do this always by partnering with large organizations. How has this new model evolved? Tell us a little bit about the story. Well, so my first venture studio or foundry, whatever you want to call it, sort of company builder was, was outside of the corporate context. Had the first go around of that in the wild and made a lot of mistakes and realized that you know, some of the stuff around ideation or knowing when to kill an idea and the process like, can you run with multiple ideas in parallel, like people working on multiple ideas, how do you do all that? And the first go around, we didn't manage to crack it in the time that we, we had available. So, so that's sort of version one. Version two um, came later, which was when I was at Rainmaking and I was building our corporate innovation consultancy business. And large organizations came to us saying, actually, you guys are all entrepreneurs. Could you specifically build, you know, build us a startup? And so re-entered the world somewhat unexpectedly of trying to build. Our first client was actually Jaguar Land Rover, where we were building digital mobility ventures for Jaguar Land Rover, trying to get them into those, those new models and diverse way from just manufacturing metals and wheels. And in essence, the, the way we did this um, for the first 19 or so ventures with corporates was always in the constraints of a professional services business model or a consultancy business model. And so we did, did various guises of this, you know, pure fees, fees plus equity. But ultimately, it was sort of this bittersweet experience where the sweet element is we saw undoubtedly the advantages and the unfair you know, unfair sort of resources the corporate partner can provide whether that be distribution infrastructure like warehouses fleets um, balance sheet regulation even intangible um, stuff like deep domain knowledge and you know core company domain specific capabilities for sure is a massive advantage we got better over time of being able to extract those and use those um, but on the flip side, the sort of best of startup world of like, how do you have the right governance, the framework? Ultimately, we saw enough of good, but the, the, the bitter side was that we never really got the consistency of results that we knew were possible in the world with the ventures we'd built or invested in and so on. 
And so we were sort of seeing this good stuff, but not getting the consistency of successes or the scale of successes that we knew were possible. And in essence, where we are today is basically combining all of this experience of being entrepreneurs, company builders, systematizing this, and leveraging the unfair advantages of our corporate partners, but ironing out all the bad bits of our old business model and the environment that prevented us from reaching the true win-win-win. Win for the corporate, win for us, win for the founders, and in our case as well, and a final win to our investors, because we're now an investment vehicle. So that's kind of the evolution. One thing I want to hone in on before we move on is venture building for you is something you're so passionate about. What do you mean when you say venture building? Because I think you talk about a very specific type of venture when you mean that. Yeah, I mean, the stuff that I get really passionate about is probably more colloquially referred to as startups, right? So venture-backed or VC-backed startups. And the only reason why I say venture-backed is is that the in order to be venture-backed, they have to be really ambitiously big ideas. So they're going after billion-dollar markets. Um, and our particular flavor when we talk about technology is really talking about digital. So it's you know new digitally-enabled business models that are high growth, right? And disruptive, to use that, that phrase. So for us, the way we look about it with our corporate partners, it's kind of saying, we're combining going, hey, how do we allow them to explore to exploit and to own new strategic areas of growth, brand new businesses that sit outside of their core competencies. And that's kind of where we play. So we, we're co-investing because we believe it's a big opportunity as well. And I think that's something really important to touch on is that you know we're also making that investment as well, right? So I'm really buying to the business model, the market size being big enough. You know, that's a huge component of what we do, right? Absolutely. At its most fundamental, uh, entrepreneurship requires skin in the game. Yeah. And, you know, incentives and environment are super important. You know, for us, the fact that we don't charge fees and we co-invest millions of our own capital alongside our corporate partners is a requirement. In not doing so, we're just not aligning the incentives. We're not aligning all the things that, that need to be true in order for us to, to win together. I guess the other element you've touched upon that we always look for in our ventures is, is that unfair advantage. Can you unpick a little bit what an unfair advantage might look like for an example and also what it's not? Because I think often it's confusing to get your head around what that could be. The unfair advantage is, is the reason we're partnering in the corporate. So it's like the requirement, right? Regardless of the attractiveness of a venture idea or a concept we might have and be very excited about, it's, it's never going to be investable by us unless the corporate partner specific to that venture concept is providing this unfair advantage. So what is it? Um, often it's easy to think about it's just distribution. So access to their millions of customers or access to scale distribution networks they might have. In others, it's also very, it's just like tangible physical assets. So fleets, warehousing real estate, physical real estate, um, factories, things like that. Um, and probably on the other end of the spectrum, you get things like data assets, and then you get regulatory umbrellas, being able to use the regulatory licenses, and then into the sort of intangible core capabilities. So that could be domain specific, like claims processing, um, you know, just operational things. So it, it really depends on the organization, but it's, it's all of these aspects of kind of their deep domain knowledge and their scale strengths. It's a combination of one or both of those that 
that we're looking to deploy and leverage in the ventures we build together with them. I guess the easy rule of thumb to test if it's actually an unfair advantage is would an investor genuinely think the startup had a higher chance of success significantly with this? Or even would we be able to arrive later to the game and beat out a startup that already exists because we have this huge advantage? Or maybe even finally, does it allow us to break into an industry that otherwise just has too high a barrier to entries so startups are still struggling to play in. Yeah, absolutely. The, the ultimate benefit of sort of combining the best of big and the best of, of small or the entrepreneurial world, and, and when we put it together, it really comes down to sort of two things at its core. It's, it's a much higher chance of reaching scale and outperforming startups in the wild. So it's a much higher chance of just getting ventures to work. But the second piece is getting a much higher return on investment. Right. So, you know, we're seeing across our portfolio anywhere between five to nine times cash return in a four to five year period. So it, it, those are the two main reasons why we're doing it. But um, what's unique about a model from an investment thesis standpoint beyond those two core is we can genuinely be a fast follower, which is what you were alluding to, which is this concept where if you compare to if you were a C VC in the wild, and a startup was coming to you for a seed round and you looked and go, oh, I love the idea, but there's sort of four or five series A funded startups already in the region doing roughly the same thing. You're too late. You can't invest in that seed stage. You, you passed it, right? You know, those, those ventures are now in the market and it's done. Whereas conversely for us, we can look at the sort of proven business models of those four to five series A funded startups and going, wow, what they're doing is really awesome. That seems great. We find the right corporate partner and bang, we can take them on and outcompete those startups. Even if we might be two or three years later to the party, bringing that scale strength to bear allows us to be genuinely a fast follower and outcompete. So, you know, there's this old phrase, um, you know, from uh, Mark Andreessen, which is like, you know, can corporates figure out innovation before startups figure out distribution? And that's ultimately the challenge. What we're saying is we get, we're giving the corporates innovation, we get the distribution bang, we can sort of out, out, out smart or out execute startups. I think the second point which you allude to is it does open up certain venture ideas that are just really hard to target um, by startups in the world because they're either very capex intensive or infrastructure uh, intensive they require scaled uh, capabilities so a good example of that would be say EV fleet management as a service so if you're a fleet owner like a logistics company or a utility or a municipality say buses we know that diesel is going to be regulated out and they're all going to be electric vehicles so if you had a you know, a fleet of buses coming back to the depot at the end of the night, and you needed to charge 30, 40 buses, right now you'd melt the grid, even if you installed the charging structure. So now you need, you know, on-site battery storage at scale. You probably need some sort of power gen to decrease the per unit cost, so some photovoltaics. And, and really installing the charging infrastructure, the battery uh, storage infrastructure, and, you know, the power gen infrastructure, like, that's really hard to do, not to mention even the EV fleet's cars themselves to do as a startup in the wild, right? But for us, partnering with a large energy company, a large oil and gas company, a large utility, it opens up those types of sort of infrastructure, heavy or capex intensive or scale 
you know, scaled uh, infrastructure needs, those sort of new business concepts become available to us, which is awesome. It's kind of like the big, hairy, scary industry stuff. What kind of corporates are looking at this model and getting excited? Because obviously, I know the corporates we can't yet publicly share, but you know, are signed up and ready to run. But I think it's helpful just to, you know, not only are we working across industries, so really we're working consumer facing B2B, you know, everywhere from that spread, but we're also, I think it's fair to say, working with corporates at very different stages of maturity. So where do you normally find, what are the different use cases for corporates who might be looking to, to test the model? I think that there's, let's talk about the eligibility first, because there's, there's, there's our side as well, right? For us, you know, for you to be an eligible corporate partner, the sort of the definition of providing us the unfair advantages we see, a rough rule of thumb would be either as a business unit or as an organization, you need sort of a billion plus in revenues to be of sufficient size to be interesting to us. Right? So rough rule of thumb, billion, two billion plus in annual revenues for either a business unit or for an organization as a whole to be qualifying. There are, furthermore, there are certain industries that are just not interesting to us, sort of self-evidently pharmaceuticals, public sector, and also the big tech giants. You know, <laughs> Google does not need our help. Uh, so those three, you know, we don't really work with. But as you mentioned, we're, we're generally speaking, we're industry agnostic. So in terms of what levels of maturity, you know, we work, I think the minimum requirement from maturity angle, the, the easiest way to answer this is just the, the, the corporate partner having a design interest and an acknowledgement that they need to build new digitally enabled business models. That's basically it. You know, it's not our job to convince them of that, but once, once they have come to the realization that actually there are really interesting new business models that they should be building, leveraging their unfair advantages and assets and resources, that be hugely beneficial to their medium to long-term growth. At that point, that's all you need. Yeah, because I think one of the things I often think about is we have everyone who's kind of tried it themselves and failed. We have those who are trying it and it's working, but they're using us as like an extra capacity overflow valve because they want to do more faster. So, and it can be people who are literally, they now have C-suite buy-in, but they haven't tried anything. <laughs> and I, it's quite unique. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good point you mentioned, right? So you could go from one end of the spectrum, you've got you know, some corporate partners who've not done an accelerator, not really done any startup engagement. This is really their first sort of corporate innovation initiative don't have a CBC fund, you know, arguably you'd say very, very low down on the corporate innovation maturity scale. Yet, you know, you've got C-suite buy-in and we're building some awesome ventures with them. Somewhere in the middle, you have, say, eventually, you know, a corporate that's done the accelerator stuff, has a CBC fund, you know, is done stuff, has a capability, is now maybe tried a little bit themselves and is now trying to, to get some proper wins that make real money across the board. For them, yeah, absolutely. We can take money out of the CC fund. We can leverage their IC. Brilliant. And then on the far end of the spectrum, you have you know, organizations which have you know, venture building functions, whether they are like the ventures unit, the incubation studio, whatever you want to call them, futures teams, high growth teams, who've been operating for two or three years, have got a good capability. And for them, we're just an overflow valve. Mm -hmm. So there's an element where you know, what they, once they reach a certain term of velocity, what they don't struggle for is good ideas to pursue or, or ideas they would like to validate and try and pursue. 
So what, what prevents them from doing that is they get limited by the amount of resources they can deploy to sort of effectively evaluate, is this worth investing in, and then ultimately pursuing it in parallel so they reach a ton of velocity. For those, they'll throw a couple of venture concepts over the fence to us, we'll independently evaluate it by our fund, decide if we're willing to co-invest, and ultimately for them, basically generate one or two ventures that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to launch you know, in the sort of relevant time frame without us. So we're like the overflow valve. Something like 80% of corporates know that their business model is at risk. It's not just that they have that awareness, but it's actually that they want to own the new business models that are going to disrupt them. Yeah. And currently they're maybe, as you say, doing that through CVC, but it's not, it's not reaching the, the actual equity they need in the venture. They're not guaranteed the exit, but actually for new ways to own those high growth ventures, which obviously this model that's, that's, I mean, this is like, you know, to use a, a probably flipping example, right? You know, something we can all understand, like every single bank wish they built TransferWise, Revolut, you know, Monzo, whatever. Basically, they wish they had, right? You know, every car company manufacturer wish they built Uber. Right? Yeah. And ultimately, we're sort of in the process of granting that wish. That's what, that's, I mean, in it might sound grandiose, but that's what we're doing. It's like, how do we get them to sort of actually have built and own that? Not MA, because like the MA scenario there is MA is reactive. It's basically a defensive mechanism, which is once something exists and it's proven and it's big, it's like go spend a lot of money to go and buy. And then you're going to have to figure out how do we reintegrate it back into the business? How do we unlock the synergies? How do we continue owning that asset so we can get the full benefit? So MA ultimately is just a later stage reactive defensive. And it comes with like, if you've got the cash, you can spend it, right? Yeah. CVC is the other thing. CVC is, at, you know, in my view, at best is basically research and development, right? You're taking some money, which in all statistical probability will not yield you a positive return on investment, but you're placing these small bets. And if you can allocate enough human capital to the portfolios that you invested in, it's kind of like an information radio radiator what's coming around the corner in terms of business model innovation, technology. And so it's kind of like outsource or collective R&D. Right? But that's very different. Mm. You know, it, neither of those models to me solve what we're trying to solve here, yeah. which is saying how we build brand new business models to us as an organization, right? But make sure that they're connected to the business, leveraging all these unfair advantages, right? So there isn't this reintegration risk. And they might fully own it and scale it and capture them the vast majority of the value, right? So it becomes, you know, that thing five, seven, 10 years down the line that is now minimum 20, 40, 50% or like 20% of group profits. Because I, I think the other thing that's worth clarifying is around the equity. Because obviously we can invest, we take equity, we don't take fees. But I think a lot of corporates hear that and get nervous because you're talking about strategically aligned businesses they know they want to own. You're talking about pulling on corporate unfair advantages throughout the duration of the life. And, and so what are your thoughts on the corporates that work with us? I, I think they all get really clearly that our goal is to exit to them so that yeah. they're guaranteed ownership, even though they actually share ownership at the riskiest stages. Once it's de-risked, they buy it back at a much cheaper rate than they would M&A because it's still earlier stage than M&A. And then actually, <laughs> they're the 100% owner when the, the majority of the value is still to be realized, right? Yeah, so there's always this quick pro quo, right? 
which is, yes, we're partnering up them because we want these unfair advantages. In return, we have to give them effectively exclusivity on the venture. So we exit successful ventures back to our corporate partners so they can fully own them and continue scaling and actually capture the vast majority of the value from sort of years four, five and beyond, right? You know, all, all companies have a sort of sigmoidal growth rate, so they capture all that value. And so what we're saying is like, look, you give us these unfair advantages in return, we're guaranteed only if it's successful that you're gonna buy this out. We have very clear mechanisms which are based on the, the fundamental performance, like a multiple of you know, policy sold, EBITDA, revenue, that, that allows them to take control and continue scale. So what, what does that mean for us? The truth will mean it means that when we're not unicorn hunting, we'll never have a billion dollar IPO. That's, that's what we give up. We're, we're in many respects, we're capping our, our financial upside in exchange for the scale strengths, which basically net net means that we get way higher success points. So like basically 40 to 50% of everything that we see in fund exits because we have this unfair advantage. And so for us, what we're really doing is kind of taking a P level, private equity level risk, but with VC level returns, where we're not doing the traditional VC model, which is like one in 15 has to be a unicorn, one in 10 at best. Like forget that. We're, we're getting these models where we're sort of getting, you know, one in two, <laughs> more than one in three of the ventures we launch are successful. But the reason why they're successful is we're pulling on these unfair advantages. But in return for that way higher probability of success rate, we then basically sit in this M&A range. And that M&A range means that, you know, we're selling businesses of an enterprise value of say 40 to 400 million, but the corporate already owns say 40% at that exit. So they're only paying out 60% they don't own. And it's always based on the fundamental performance of that business. The reality is, even these, these valuation formulas that they have attached to their call options, there isn't an auction. We can't put up the price. It's not as if we can bring their competitors and pump it up. So, you know, it's, it's different, but it is still synergistic. And the reason why it's synergistic is just the fundamentals. Like our profession and our passion is going from zero to 100 to 200 employees to 10 or 50 million in profit. That's where we're really good. At that point, the corporates are actually way better managers and company builders to, to continue scaling it. So it's this sort of genuine symbiotic relationship, which is like, look, we'll do the first one to five years. That's yeah. where we're awesome. If it works as a nail it, the next five to 10 years, that's you. That's actually, we don't want to be the managers of that business. And so it's this sort of, we get to play where our passion and where we're best and our skill sets and our culture and the corporates get to play to their strengths. And in so doing, win-win. And also, I think it, it talks to the fact that fundamentally, <laughs> the ventures behave very differently or need different things at different risk levels. And we're, we're taking it at the risky stage and treating it like it's risky. And to that end, it operates as its own entity outside of the, the corporate so that we can de-risk it. And often you hear of these, these horror stories where a merger and acquisition happens too early or even with an internal startup. Like it just gets swallowed by that corporate bear hug of like over-enthusiastic love that ends yeah. up killing it. Um, and actually, I think the other thing is that we kind of protect it from that, which, you know, otherwise we've all seen the death rates from that. Yeah, you know, let's look at the numbers, right? So if you, if you look at ventures that are sort of championed and built internally within an organization, and when we say ventures, it's kind of like new business models specifically, not, you know, 
elements of a new feature or yeah. product. It's new business models. And of those, less than 8% of these ventures launch internally reach scale. Mm. Right? So they've got an 8% chance currently based on their current organizational capabilities reaching scale. Now, the interesting point is when you actually look at those 8%, even the 8% are winners. You ask the secondary two questions. How long did it take them and how much money did it cost them? Yeah. And the truthful answer is it takes them twice as long and four times the amount of money. Right? And that's, that's truth even to, to be successful. The other element, which is a software element, which I think is, is just as important in the, the financials, is all of those 8% of ventures, and you know, we've seen the ones that work only work because there's been a hero effort. Whether it's the CEO sort of slamming it through the business or some sort of key champion who's, who's in the venture itself who's slamming it through the business. The reality is they're only successful because of this hero effort, right? And this hero effort bruises both. It bruises the larger organization and it bruises the venture itself. What we're doing in our model is engineering all of those bits out. Because what it really comes down to is you can't ignore the last 40 plus years of best practice from venture capital in terms of what governance is really required, what decision-making, what culture, what incentive structures, how you fund stuff. The environmental structure is way more important than even the talent. You can put the best entrepreneurs in the world, but if you put them in the wrong environment, you're not gonna get the output, right? Or you're gonna get the output only with hero effort and significant blood, sweat, and tears. I think to the talent point as well, there's no one saying people in corporates aren't smart enough to do this, right? But it's also, like anything respecting that you're going to be better at doing it if you've done it before and so actually again if you're trying to shortcut that process if you're trying to get to revenue the fastest way you can if you're forgetting about learning and culture change but you're just focused on that new business growth you're going to put in founders who are proven and you're going to incentivize them in the way those founders are incentivized so before we and i promise we will go into those stages of how we run this, but I think it's really helpful to set up two more things. So one is the, the, the talent that we do put on the teams and the support that we can give them as, as a central studio. And the second is, is the incentivization. We've, we've touched on the fact that we take equity, but there's a second part to that. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, the talent thing is the number one driver of success, right, in, in our view to our model. Um, and there's multiple elements to this, right? So you know, the domain expertise that sits in, in large organizations is super important and we do pull on that, right? Absolutely. But generally speaking, if you think about the high potentials in any large organization, the high potentials that thrive and are considered the high potentials that are on the, the career track within the organization, they tend to succeed for very different reasons for those that thrive going from zero to one, one to 10, right? And that's not to say one environment is better than the other, it's just apples and pears. The other aspect of, for our view as an investor is we don't want to pay for someone's learning curve. We just, if, if we could choose not to, I don't want to spend my money doing that. So from our perspective, it's like, yeah, we take proven founders who've made a ton of mistakes before and we drop them into our ventures. Not only do they hit the ground running and they get to scale and execute faster, but fundamentally they're not burning our cash going through the inevitable mistakes are virtually really, like, impossible to to avoid if you've never done this before, right? It's, it's I, I, yeah, so there's an element for us which is like, 
and there's there is now because of mature startup ecosystems in Europe and in the US, and particularly, there's there's plenty of talent out there who sits in the sweet spot. So the talent we attract for our our banners, like we have a basically what we say is they have to have raised the Series A before, been a VC backed business, and been part of that journey. That's kind of the minimum requirement. What's really interesting is what we really search for is sort of chip on the shoulder. So the founders that we look for are a little bit later in life, so mid thirties to mid forties. They've, as I've said before, they've raised Series A money. They've, you know, done it a couple of times before, but they haven't had that big success. And so they've been through this experience where they've made a ton of failures, but they've also built their craft. And to themselves, they really want to prove, and they believe, but they want the proof that they're able to get that exit again. Right? Not, not so much for the monetary gain, but just to themselves, to be like, there is this definitive, I built something from nothing and it exited, I did it, I am an entrepreneur, I'm there. We, we beckon them over to us, you know, and we say, hey, we're going to give you all the good stuff that a corporate, that a VC, and a VC backs up have. You're going to have tons of equity, you're going to have the right decision-making process and autonomy, and you get to choose whether you passionately want to do this and iterate, all of that stuff is good. But in addition to that, what we're going to give you is all of these unfair advantages from the corporate. And by the way, you know, you don't actually have to go raise money in the world, us and the corporate will, will invest in stuff. So, you know, you turn up on day one and the corporate and us have already made the seed, at that stage, the seed investment decision. So, we put in 200K, the corporate's in 400K, there's 600K in the business, in a bank account, waiting for the founders. So, they turn up day one, they've got 600K, that's about a year's worth of runway to execute to product market fit. And if they nail it, us and the corporate then will invest further money. So, there's all these huge benefits. And more importantly, though, it's kind of, we have to acknowledge that they're at this different stage in their lives, being more mature. So that the truthful answer is they're just not willing to take the same level of risk they did first time around in their 20s, right? They, they tend to have kids, family, potentially mortgages. And so they need this sort of de-risked way to pursue their passion, their entrepreneurial way of life. And they don't want to become an employee again. They really don't. Yeah. That is the talent we drop into our ventures and unleash. We give them the platform, the right environment. And honestly, not all the ventures will work out. Some of them die, but they'll die for the right reasons in the right time frame at the right cost. And I think it's also worth flagging that as much as they don't want to go back to a corporate, like they're also just not motivated by salary. They need yeah. a the security that these are people who ultimately come back to that skin in the game. They need it to be tied into the venture. They need to know that they make the wealth and equity and their base salary has to be low. It's like they can pay their rent. They might be able to go on one small family holiday a year, but that's it. And the reason being, it means that if the venture isn't working, they tried for three months to pivot, to change. And it's, not, it's good, but it's not great. Then they need the opportunity cost to genuinely kill it and stop it. The key thing here, and this is the weird thing our corporate partners don't necessarily understand at the beginning is, you know, when they talk about building ventures internally, Often, all of their amazing employees are still on the same comp packages. Their base salary stays the same, the benefits stay the same. And so, the real interesting question I ask them is what is the true opportunity cost to your employees if they're going to you know, build a venture internally? Because if, if there's no true opportunity cost, then I would say the environment is set up wrong. For us, as a studio, it means that we're also incentivized to pull the plug on ideas that aren't working because we want to redeploy the investment pro rata to ourselves and to the corporate so we can put it into other new ideas that have a higher success. So 
everyone has really aligned incentives, which I, I genuinely, you know, I've worked in corporation, corporate innovation as well. It's really hard to fully align the incentives when fees are being paid. But when it's yeah. just on equity, we co-agree the KPIs that we set with a corporate. We're not setting vanity KPIs that allow us to ham up the valuation. It's tied to what the corporate cares about the venture delivering. So they're only buying something that they genuinely have helped set the value of and they believe in the value of. And, and for us, we're, only, we're exiting because it's the right stage to exit and because the business is big enough. So I think this is the perfect point actually to, to maybe outline what our process is because then we can talk more specifically to how this plays out. So if we start with, you know, the first step, you, you've got a corporate who's really, really interested. What happens next? Yeah, so the first step, so we have a four-step sort of path stages to, our, to our, our model, right? The first step is what we call scoping or scope. And that's where we need to first understand the strategic um, areas of interest um, or growth areas of the medium term, five, four, five plus years to the corporate partner. So what are they strategically interested in? And is there anything that's specifically out of scope, right? We, we don't want to build ventures here. It's just, it's not within our strategic remit. And for that scoping to start, that's a free process. We don't charge for that, right? As you, for the exact reason you just said, because we're not doing paid ideation. We want to genuinely see if an idea comes out, we invest in. So we give it six weeks of our time. This is actually what I end up doing with a lot of my time. And we really go out and see if there's an idea we believe in. Yeah. A big part of the work is helping the corporate work out what would they be interested in owning? What are the parameters? But because we've, we're investing a lot of our sweat time, <laughs> earning our XP up front as well, we need some reassurance, right? So that there's a step even before scoping that I think it's really important True. to understand. So that's, that's the letter of intent. Um, so the letter of intent is, is a requirement from our government's perspective that we need to sign by basically a CXO, someone at the board level. It's a non-legally binding letter of intent. So there's no commitment on either party once they sign it. But what it really creates is it de-risks our process, process of partnership by outlining the core elements of our model, right? So, so basically it sort of outlines the, the how, if you will, right? Which is um, what's the investment timings, the quantums, the governance, the incorporation, talent, buyout mechanisms. It sort of just highlights all of these things up front, right? And so we can agree on the how, which once we've signed it, signed this level intent, it means that we, from our government standpoint, can allocate resources of the portfolio freely into perpetuity to generate awesome venture ideas for that corporate. Right? There's no limit on that. And our job as, as union is, is to create deal flow for our firm. That's literally what we get paid to do. So we want to do that. But that having that letter of intent basically creates the moral obligation, which is if we do this six week worth of work and we come up with a venture idea that we're willing to invest in, and the corporate partner thinks is, is awesome and equally wants to invest in it, then there's a moral obligation. We're going to do it together as per our model. There's no, oh, they're going to take this idea and go away and do it themselves. Right? So that's all it is. It's, and to be honest, there are some other, some sort of smaller practical reasons why we do this, which is for any venture to truly succeed, i.e. to be able to pull on those unfair advantage, the truth is it needs senior suite, senior suite approval. And so getting that buy-in up front, not so much on the idea, but to the mechanism, uh, it provides a lot of signaling to the rest of the organization such that the different business units 
can actually deploy those resources and capabilities. So that's like when we launch a venture, you know, it's got support from, from the CEO, the C, CFO, the CIO, the CDO, and so on. And so that letter of intent then obviously frees us up to the, to the, the scoping. Yeah. And, and as we've talked about that scoping, it, it, it's interesting to me because obviously it's my day to day, but it can start from anywhere, right? It can start from an idea that the corporate wants us to explore and sense check, which we might then actually alter and change the business model. It can start with, we want to explore subscription. It could start you know, so anywhere on the, you know, the, around the business model from a new customer segment that you want to capture to new revenue model to just knowing which unfair advantages you have to use, we can actually go from all those start points. And we typically design and run a little exercise with real startup examples to really bring to life for our corporates. What is this we're asking? It's ultimately what strategically really do you want to own, not just invest in, but own. And then where can we actually unpick your unfair advantages? And off the back of that, we then obviously go and do six weeks worth of work. And in that time, we're really, and I've worked in corporate innovation, so I, I hate to say this, but I, it's true. We're trying to do what a corporate takes six months to do in six weeks. So we, we go and we look to try and answer the big questions that we would always look for in any venture. You know, is the market opportunity really big enough? Is there room to play? Is the competitive landscape just too full of mature startups, of mature incumbents, and there's no way to disrupt them? That leads on to, is there an unmet need and a customer segment we really understand and then is there a business model that we can get excited about to realize that unmet need in an innovative way and where we think we can also make profit and have that high growth potential? And then finally, always that checkpoint. We know that because we're doing the scoping within these bounds that it's strategically interesting, but we always sense check, is there an unfair advantage from that corporate that will give this an, a really significant leg up compared to startups in the wild? Because... The next part of that process is obviously we pitch it back to the corporate to see if they'll invest and there's no obligation that they do, but we're also simultaneously pitching it back to our investment committee who can yeah. and <laughs> say no. And yeah, sometimes yeah. we're actually pitching to them to not invest. So we've also done it where we've actually looked at a space. We've decided before we even get to the investment committee, who can also decide themselves if we pitch something we love that they hate it. But in this case, they also agree with us. It was not investable. And then we share, we, we simply share all of our learnings and data with the corporate so they can shortcut their learning. But they're looking at this guy. I mean, it was quite distrustful last time we did it, wasn't it? And they were like, you're giving us all this free data and this free resource. Are you going to now back charge us for the work? I think they asked. Yeah. yeah. They, they sometimes forget. It's like, no, there's no fees. We, we don't make any revenues. We only yeah. make money by successful exits. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, right, the scoping work is ultimately creates these investment packs that go to our fund and our independent investment committee decides to deploy capital or not. Yeah. But all of that work we share freely, as you mentioned, with our corporate partners. And so, you know, some of our corporate partners we've been working with for a lot longer than others, right? And, you know, I was talking to one of them recently and, you know, he was saying that actually one of the biggest... <laughs> the biggest advantages we provided them was to effectively kill one of these ideas that they were going to pursue, right? And then in fact, we've saved them. He describes that regardless of the, the venture we're currently building, which they're very excited about, we're very excited about, it's like we've saved them millions before we even launched the first venture. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, that's one way to look at it. <laughs> so obviously for ideas that get killed, that's it, but we'll keep 
ideating for every partner that we've got so it doesn't end yeah. with that idea we'll rerun the process and and come up with new ideas and, and the the point for me is that because we're doing this every day day in day out it's really easy for us to <laughs> keep doing that because we're constantly have in mind all our corporate partners but also we're constantly cross-fertilizing ideas and business models every time we research a new space so it's really right for us to be constantly on the lookout for new ideas and then we can feed it back in and say okay we now want to do a scoping because we found a nugget somewhere else so the ideas that then obviously get taken forward then get funding from us and from the corporate yeah and that's pretty standard at this stage you know it's still a low level yeah. right yeah so the the, the seed stage which is the the first sort of basically what we do then is if they want to invest we want to invest we'll incorporate a new a new legal entity we'll always invest 200,000 the corporate best 400,000 and collectively that 600,000 is the seed capital for that venture we then go away put in two co-founders a CEO CTO build a team of another three around them so the sort of five and then that venture team with the two co-founders full-time focused on building their venture mm. right and so that's that 600k is their runway so they basically have a year runway to nail it but as you mentioned you know should it not be working out anytime sooner we'll stop it you know and then distribute yeah. any unspent money back to the corporate mouse pro rata but if it's going well the ven the venture team and the founders in particular come to us and say hey i want four five six million to continue scaling this is my business model this is why it's awesome and then again, we're basically back to making our own independent investment decisions about whether or not us and Kofana want to put more capital in. And that point, we'll start writing checks in the millions. And I think it's worth noting because I've uh, my background is uh, lean startup coaching. So you do it fast and, and, and test and learn. And people, uh, particularly old clients, have asked me, you know, what do you mean you're funding it for a year's worth of runway? You told us within a corporate we should never fund more than five weeks. Um, but I think that the key, again, is just to reiterate that it does get returned early if it's not working because the, the founders have that opportunity cost. This is a really unique point and it's a nuanced point, but actually the results, the result output is fundamentally different. And this is, this is like historically what we would do would do three months of validation mm. and after three months work, go, okay, let's pitch. Maybe we give it a hundred K, 200 K do a bit more work and then pitch a bit more. And we had this little milestone and what we found is it's actually in reality, the, you know, we're not doing anything that different. What we're saying is we, we give them 600 K run, but we can kill it anytime. So if it's not working, we can kill it after three months. There's nothing stopping us. We can kill it after four months. The difference is the psychological difference to our founders and the speed of their execution, being able to sit there and psychologically, emotionally be safe for yeah. 12 months and say, guys, just focus on building an awesome business. And guess what? You're going to make a bunch of mistakes. You're going to reiterate really quickly. And yes, at any moment we can kill it, but ultimately we're starting off with, you've got a year. It sounds like we're, we're spending too much money, but the reality is there's no real greater risk to us because we can stop at any time. However, the performance and the output is a multiple, it's, it's, it's a factor larger or better than doing what a lot of people, what we used to do, which is sort of three months, a little bit of money, another four months, a little bit of money. Yeah, and even if you compare it to startups in the world, which is why I think it gets really interesting, is if you look at how long founders in the world on average have to give like six months to fundraising. And if you speak to any founders, um, you know, 
that is six months full time if, if they if they can because they need it and actually again if we're thinking about out competing and outpacing particularly for that early follower fast follower method not having to fundraise not only does it allow us to get incredible talent at a much lower rate because we can give them a smoother journey but it also genuinely allows us an incredible delta in pace if you think about it the final point i want to make on founders as well because i just think it's really key when we're talking to the speed that we get with them uh, so we have a head of talent who's incredible matt he really knows how to recruit for startups at different stages and one yeah. of the things that he always looks for is not just that proven talent in terms of their entrepreneurs though that is a barrier but he also looks for very specific skills for different business models yeah. so for example uh, if you're looking at building a new um, luxury fashion brand but selling online he looks for complementary skills in his CTO CEO pairings so you end up with at least across the two real deep knowledge of e-commerce real deep knowledge of e-commerce tech <laughs> of growth marketing and of the luxury space and potentially even fashion and and that really deliberate looking for skills and experience means that you have network means that you know what the tools that you want to use are and it's just everything is geared to getting there faster so yeah matt is a he's amazing and he's you know genuinely plays like human tetris <laughs> and um, exactly. it's, it's a phenomenal thing that he does every single venture that we build because you know, he's looking at one side, right? What are the critical success factors, skill sets needed to execute this business model, right? And there's going to be, on average, somewhere between you know, four to seven, depending on this model. But they're sort of unique to the business model that we're doing. So I need those represent. I need that to be represented, mm. predominantly with the core ones covered across the co-founding pair. So it doesn't really matter where they sit and which, which individual, it's as long as that they, that together, they complete, complete that. And, and I then think the second thing is like beyond the business model and the needs, you know, what we're doing is arrange marriages, right? So <laughs> it talks about the courtship process and how to de-risk de matchmaking. So like, you know, all his liquid days, he's like, I'm a matchmaker. Right? And then around them, how do you build out the rest of the team? So you have that core venture team of five, two co-founders plus three, that we have found over the year, many years of doing this is the most efficient and effective in reaching terminal velocity in the first year. And you know, we know that the number one thing that VCs, when they're making an investment, look for is, is talent, right, in the early stages. Yeah. We're obviously talking now in the stages of the process. We've, we've uh, got through our first year, we've repitched for funding, we've got these incredible founders already and they're growing their team and they're pitching to grow their team more. So the, the next stage is again, actually fairly simple. We essentially ask them to pitch it back to both investment committees and their ask is attached to clear metrics that are co-agreed between the two parties. Uh, so that we set out that series A when the corporate and us put in more money, as you said, in the millions, typically for the corporate, it might be around 4 million and for us, it's around 2 million, but that can vary. Yeah. We're actually then setting and agreeing the valuation levers so that it's clear and uncontested and the next stage so they then have roughly that that six million total will give them another three four years of execution and as we've already mentioned we've got matt on hand to support them as they need to build out the team but i wonder if now is also a good time to talk to our other amazing co-founders in the studio so we've got jordan who you're meeting now we've got matt who we've talked about 
We also have Lee and then Mats as well, who are both incredible. And what we're trying to do is, as you mentioned, from talent to liaison with the corporate, we're trying to remove as much friction from the startups again so they can go faster. So is it worth kind of speaking to what you looked for in your co-founders with, with Matt and, and Lee and ultimately why they're so frigging awesome? It's not, it's not so much I look for them, it's like we, we all came together, but we, we all bring, you know, there's a lot of stuff. As entrepreneurs, we talk about like T-shaped people, right? So you're deep in one area, but you're broad across the top. And, you know, the, the T to all of us is we've all been serial founders, right? We've raised money before, we've been there, we've done it. You know, Lee has also been an investor before, Matt's been in private equity as well, and also VC. So there's an element around us where we have this broad T, which is we know what it likes to be a founder. We've been on both sides of the table as an investor and as a founder, and that's what, that's the core of it. But then the sort of T to each of us is slightly different. So Lee's our studio CTO. So, you know, yes, he sits on our investment committee and he's actually instrumental in coming up with awesome ideas and working with, with our portfolio ventures and coaching the founders, but he brings the, the deep technical expertise in both the investment decision we're making, but also with stuff like, how do we help the ventures integrate into the enterprise level architecture of our corporate partners, whether that's, you know, warehouse management systems, EPOS terminals, you know, mainframes, you know. And so Lee has this rare skill set of having worked in the enterprise world as well as being the startup founder and, and the investor. And so we can help talk, you know, from both sides of like, how do we, when is the right time and how's the most effective time to integrate the technology side, as well as what technologies should we be using those ventures and how do we maximize on, on all things technology? You know, Matt, we talked about is the talent and you know the critical element of all of our venture success being the talent in the teams. And then Matt's on the other side is, is our chief investment officer. So he geeks out and all things Excel and all things financial. You know, the funding instruments that we've created in terms of these con convertible loan notes from the seed round and how to uh, maintain the right governance and risk process for the, the corporate investor, but also sort of negate the compliance risk, the, you know, the sort of legal issues and how to have all of these things in place, you know, from a deep financial side, as well as our own investors and LPs that sit behind, you know, our co-investment capital, that's Matt's expertise. Um, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, ultimately he's built amazing startups to Kumi and a bunch of others, but he, that's his deep team. And also I think as across those four founders, we've got so much, experience in very different business models from my side whenever i'm scoping with uh, mariana and with eric who are also our amazing team um principal and associate i think what often what we find is we'll we'll have an idea of something we'll be testing with loads of analogs we all have our own unique experiences as well we've all been in different startups we're all actually also serial startups but then we sense check it with someone else on the team and they've actually got experience of that business model in a different guy's industry. And actually they'll tell you, oh no, this is the key success factor. And I think that cross-pollination again, even within the team has, I mean, I can think on every single venture that we've done with the corporate, it's come from that ultimately. Wow. A, a good idea sparks a great idea and so on. And then we can all poke holes in each other's ideas very constructively to strengthen them or to kill them when they should die. <laughs> There is no doubt um, the collective experience we have of having, you know, 
been out in the trenches, whatever you want to call it, like having just made all these mistakes yeah. firsthand. Yeah. Right? You know, we've built so many businesses, we've invested in so many businesses, you know, we've, it doesn't mean like we still make mistakes, right? And this is still a, a high risk asset class that we're doing here, right? And not, not all of these things, not remotely all of these things will work, but there is a lot of collective years of how do we shortcut and avoid the big pitfalls, yeah. which we, you know, we've made. And, and so, yes, that comes with a, a ton of value, which is kind of why our investors invested in us. Yeah. But um, the truth of the matter is, as we always say, and you know, and you're a big passionate of this, is like, even with all that said, and as exciting as we could be about, you know, making an investment decision, yeah, we're willing to invest in this idea. Yeah. The market is the only one that truly decides. Yes. Everyone from the chairman on down gets fired by the customer simply spending their money elsewhere. And, yeah. um, you know, all the other things, like, you know, Steve Black's famous case of, you know, no business plan survive first contact with customers. Yeah. All of these things we know are true. So, you know, even with all the stuff that we get exciting, all the experience that we have, the truth can only be found once the rubber meets the road, founders in place, and they're executing the business for real. We've touched on the support we give the venture, you know, before it even comes to life and then once it's alive. Um, and obviously we've talked about that corporate unfair advantage and we do a lot to try and help the corporate unlock it. Uh, one of the questions that we often get asked or I often get asked is about what does the corporate need to give us? Like, what does that actually mean in terms of resource for a corporate, right? Because they're weighing up <laughs> how much time they have. So, yeah. so how much genuinely does a corporate need to give? Yeah, I think, you know, I would say broad brush, corporates always often overestimate the resource requirement in terms of attention and, and stuff from their side to one because now, from their side, I'm models really quick, but it's also resource, resource light and capital efficient to get going. And so, brass tacks, there are two things that we require. One is what we call a corporate anchor person, which is an individual who's typically circa 20% of a full-time employee who's allocated to that venture throughout, at least through the first year, ideally throughout its lifetime. And that corporate anchor person is to be the point, the point connector on the corporate side for us to interact and the ventures and the founders to interact with to help them navigate the corporate, but also to be sort of the, the human wiki depository of, of the more weekly operational learnings that happen, right? So an individual, 20% of their sort of full-time rubber resource, definitely for the minimum for the first year or 18 months. The second thing is board participation. So every venture we create, there are seven seats on the board three of which go to the corporate partner, two of which come to us, and one for each of the co-founders, CEO, CTO. Right? So no single party has control. Really important that that's the case, but that's a separate topic. So, but the corporate needs to be turning up to the board meetings. And in the beginning, those board meetings are monthly. Right? Some cases, no, but basically it's monthly, and then as the venture matures, they'll go to quarterly, and potentially even interim, you know, in, in the latter years, years four, years five. But, Essentially, in the beginning, the first year, it's monthly. And so you need, you don't need three individuals. You can have an individual who's going to sit and carry all three votes on behalf of the corporate. But, but typically speaking, you need one or two senior individuals who are going to be the key stakeholders, typically from business unit, typically from group strategy or whoever's sponsoring it, who need to turn up to those board meetings once per month. That's what it boils down to. I mean, to try and summarize everything you've said in the last uh, little while, I mean, Essentially, we co-invest with corporates. 
we try and align the incentives fully. So we never take fees, we take equity, we make sure the founders have equity. And that means there's genuine opportunity cost. And where we work and where we have our expertise is the early stages of the venture years, zero to four or five, when it's got to be proven, when it can't survive integration in the corporate. And when ultimately, if it wants to compete with startups, it has to move at the pace of a startup. And the way we do that allows us to chase startups that are strategically really exciting for the corporate and ultimately they want to own. It de-risks the path for us and for the founders and ultimately for the corporate. And we give it the support it needs without over stifling it. So the founders still have that, that freedom to pivot that ultimately they need to act like true entrepreneurs. And what that kicks out for us and for the corporate are some ventures that will die because they should die, but they'll die faster. And ultimately those corporates that they then exit and own are trying to create the future business models that they know they need to have strategically and they want to own. And for us, we hand them over at the point that they're proven and scaling and delivering. And when we get a little bit bored, if we're honest, <laughs> and we get to realize ultimately the value that we've created as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I thank you so much for all of your time, Jordan, and for running into the model in such detail as well. And um, if you have any questions following this session and you'd like to ask, we can always do more of these. You'll be shocked to hear that Jordan and I do talk quite a lot outside of uh, video interviews. So we can, we can turn your questions um, and come back with more sessions like this as well. And we'd love to hear what you still want to know because this has just been a first flash deep dive into the model. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And um, if you'd like to reach out to us, uh, you can find our details. I'll make sure that the website and contacts are below. Thanks for listening to Adventures in Ventureland. If you enjoyed it, please do rate it and hopefully subscribe so we can see you next time we have a Rainmaking Venture Studio podcast.